Well, good morning. Good morning to those who are here. Good morning to those who are joining us online. Let's join all together in opening up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. If you're with us in person want to join us with the Blue Pew Bible, uh, you can find Galatians 1 on page 972. I want us to all see this, not just hear it, but see it for yourselves this morning, because I think the passage we're going to look at today, it's just four verses, is among the most important passages to, again, see, hear, and by God's grace and His Spirit to understand in the entire Bible. And the reason is because, try as we may, I don't think we will ever get to a place where we can overstate the importance of the gospel in the life of a believer, in the life of a church. And it's a word that if you've been around here, you know, we say all the time, we pray, we sing, we proclaim, we hopefully in our interpersonal relationships talk about the gospel to one another to the point where uh, maybe it can, I don't think it can be overused, but we can probably become numb to it. But the truth is that the gospel is to spiritual health what water is to physical health. Try as you may to live without it, it won't work. Because the gospel is the good news of a God who is gracious to undeserving sinners. It is the foundation of everything that we believe. That that by grace, and we talked about that word last week a lot, grace. By grace, God gave his son to come and live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserved, So that by grace, he can call us unto himself for redemption and then to participate in the creation's restoration of all things. Lord, be gracious to us that that never sounds normal to us. That we never grow numb to the gospel. And when it comes to salvation today, salvation through all of eternity, all is from God, all is from the gospel of grace. And so when we talk about um, at Grace Church, uh, knowing Jesus Christ and, and knowing the gospel, what, what we mean when we say that word know, to know the word the Bible talks about know, is, is yes, to believe the gospel, but also to experience the gospel and then live out the gospel, right? So you believe the gospel with your head, you experience the gospel with your heart, and then you live out the gospel with your hands. This is the flow of knowledge of Christ. And so that centrality of, of grace throughout that gospel really is our, is our constant primary hope for our members at Grace Church, uh, which is why three years ago, uh, we began something called the Daily Member Prayer Initiative to start each year. And again, now this is the third year where every day in the month of January, the membership at Grace Church prays for one another by name to these ends, to, to believe, to experience, to live it out. Um, coming into this January, we have 179 covenant members. And uh, if you're one of those members and you're kind of seeing those names, uh, you, you probably know, maybe, or hopefully recognize a lot of them. But the reality is, with the amount of new members we've had, there's probably a whole bunch of names you see on those emails. You're like, I do not know who that person is. Um, but being in covenant membership means that your, your hope and your prayer for them, all the same, is that, again, this gospel would be carried out. And, and so in those emails each day, I, I share seven prompts uh, to just give people and say, what kind of language can you have to pray for other people? Especially when you might not know them specifically, how can you pray for them? Um, 
And, you know, we are nine days into that, January 9th, and so members who are getting that email, just let this be an encouragement to you to, to kind of be steadfast through that, to make it through this month and, and pray for everyone. Um, and, and then we also have about half or probably a little bit more than half of, of those attending who are not covenant members. And so I just want you to know that that's our hope for you. Uh, the membership at Grace is not a special secret club. Uh, that we encourage all who consider Grace to be their church family to formally join in covenant membership because that's a, that's a visible commitment that serves as a means through which God grows us in grace and then uses you to grow others, right? Similar to how a marriage is a visible com- covenantal commitment for a man and a woman in a relationship. So uh, we believe that membership is a covenantal commitment as a visible representation for those in our church. And so uh, you know, we offer membership classes, you know, generally quarterly, maybe once a month. We actually have a recording of one that we did on Zoom because almost everything's on Zoom now, and so we can get that to you as well. But I, I, I want to briefly share and just read through those seven prompts. I want everyone to see what's the kind of language you can use to pray for other people, that they would live out the gospel. Because I think a lot of times we think about the gospel, we just think about maybe the, the four rules of it or, or you know, the, the, the definition of the gospel. But what's it look like to live a life in Ridgewood in 2022, in our day, in our time, in a way that lives out that gospel? So here's the seven prompts. I'm going to have them on the screen. If you're joining us online, I think uh, yeah, we're going to make it so you'll be able to see uh, the screen behind me. Number one, for a growing knowledge of God's love for them not due to their success or performance, but because he has chosen them to be his adopted son or daughter in Christ out of his deep well of love and grace, that we would know God's love for us. Number two, a desire to grow in their study and knowledge of the gospel, which would lead them to understand it more clearly and enable them to shape their lives around the command to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. Number three, if single, a commitment to honor Christ in their singleness in a way that bears faithful witness to those around them. And if married, a commitment to the covenant they made to their spouse that shows the world a picture of God's covenant love for his people. Number four, that they would steward what God has given them in time, treasure, and talents, in a way where they prioritize building up the members of Grace Church in the fullness of Christ. Prayer that they would not be consumed by the things of this world, but will leverage the things of this world to invest in the kingdom of God. That was a two for one. That probably shouldn't be two different ones. Number five, for their job and or daily vocation, and that they would see purpose in their work and would work with integrity and skill in all things to the glory of God and the good of those around them. Number six, for increased boldness in their prophetic witness for Christ, in both word and deed, in the places and amongst the people in which they live, work, and play. And then finally, number seven, that in 2022, that Christ would be magnified in their lives this upcoming year whether in prosperity or suffering, for his name's sake. What would it look like if a church prayed these things for one another? 
What would it look like for a church that lives out the gospel in this way? Um, and that this ultimately, all those truths of what it could look like, and there could be 70 prompts up there, right? That's just seven. Just kind of a little taste of what it looks like to be transformed by God unto salvation. That, that is by grace alone. That nobody's story in here is that you got saved because you quit drinking. Or that you became a more patient person or that you stop looking at pornography, right? That, that's not the story. Those might be results of God's grace in your life, but God does not save anybody because that they gave up something or they started something. And we can never say this enough, that when we receive the grace of God, he reigns over our lives and we live for him. And this introduction leads us into our passage this morning. That, again, is a small window into why 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote down to uh, write a letter to send to a series of churches in the region of Galatia because he was so disturbed that this gospel of grace was being distorted. And after the brief introduction that we saw last week, we now dive into the body of the letter. And again, just four verses this morning. So follow along as I read Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Here's how we're going to unpack this passage this morning is through a series of questions that I hope will both educate us and encourage us in the centrality of the gospel in our lives and in our church. So there's going to be five questions that I have in this passage in total, starting with number one. Why is turning to a different gospel so dangerous? Why is turning to a different gospel so dangerous? So as I mentioned last week, the, the common narrative of Galatians, if you're familiar with the Bible, familiar with the letter of Galatians, is that it is the Apostle Paul's at his um, angriest, at his most frustrated, uh, exasperated, because he starts out really hot out of the gate. And, and, and I said that, that that's not entirely true, because we saw the actual beginning last week in the greeting that often gets kind of skimmed over, that Paul began with grace, the foundation of his Worldview is grace, and he said to the church, grace to you and peace from our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. But what is at least partially true is that Paul is addressing this letter differently because while he started with grace in his greeting, he does not follow up with this typical section of thanksgiving. A lot of his letters, he'll kind of say how grateful he is for the church there, how thankful for he is of what he's hearing or, or what they're experiencing and kind of trying to encourage them. But in this letter, there's no platitudes. There's no transition. The primary point of his letter is to address some of the concerns of the reports that he has received of what's happening in these churches. 
And so he starts with, I am astonished. I, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you and are turning to a different gospel. So, so later in the letter, that again, we'll see, we're going to be walking through this letter verse by verse. Later in the letter, Paul will focus on defining the gospel. But at this point, he's focused on the exclusive nature of the gospel. Let me say it another way. He's not, in this verse, he's not telling you what the gospel is. He's telling you why it is so vital. And why it's turning to a different gospel so dangerous. So to put it plainly for this first question, the answer to this first question is that turning to a different gospel is dangerous because a different gospel is no gospel at all. A different good news is not good news. And Paul, when he says, I am astonished, he's saying, I'm amazed, I'm, I'm almost speechless, I can hardly believe it, not only that you are turning, but also because it happened so fast. So, so the context of these churches in Galatia is that we know Paul went to this region in his first missionary journey. I think I mentioned this last week. If you read Acts 13 and Acts 14, it'll tell you uh, the story of these churches starting. In a predominantly Gentile region, meaning region where there were Jews there and synagogues there, but the primary uh, kind of population is non-Jewish. It's in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And Paul and Barnabas go there. We read this again in Acts 13 14. They're proclaiming the gospel. Uh, people are coming to faith. And then within short order, they raise up leaders there. Goes to a city, proclaims the gospel, raises up leaders to plant a church and then move on to the next city. If you go back to Acts, Acts chapter 15, so the chapter right after describing the start of these churches, there's a council in Jerusalem. And the council is the apostles getting together in Jerusalem to address some disagreement that they sense within their ranks. And the issue that they talk about in Acts 15 is the very issue that Paul is writing to the church in Galatians about. In that there was an issue of what they would call Judaizers. And the belief that in order for Gentiles to become Christian, they had to first conform to Jewish customs. Acts 15 declares, after some discussion that you can read about there, that that is not true. That that is a false gospel. Because it destroys the message of grace. And so Acts 15, they write out a statement that is to be distributed to the churches. To say that that's a false gospel. And Paul does not reference that counsel in this letter. He surely would have if he was writing this after that counsel took place. Because that's an authoritative word from primarily Jewish-based apostles over the church. So it goes to reason that this letter to the Galatians was written in the time between Acts 14 and Acts 15. Before the church was planted, or no, after the church was planted and before this counsel took place. Which again, kind of leading this logic down, that Paul probably wrote this letter within one year of the church being planted. Which is part of the reason why Paul is so shocked. He's like, you just started. I was there less than a year ago. I just left you and you were walking in grace, walking in the truth. I'm not just shocked that you deserted the gospel, but brothers, it happened so fast. 
The gospel that proclaims salvation from beginning to end is by God's grace alone. That salvation is due in no part to works of the flesh. And that gospel cannot be altered in any way without being wholly destroyed. The Galatians were turning from believing they were saved and kept by grace to believing that they were initially saved by grace. Jesus mattered, but they were kept by works. And we'll dig into that a little bit later, but when it comes to the gospel, this is what we need to know here today, because this is just as much a problem today as it was 2,000 years ago, that there is no spectrum of truth we can agree to disagree on when it comes to the gospel. There is much within theology, much, much within doctrine, that true believers can have different views on. And that's why when it comes to kind of theological convictions at Grace Church, we talk about it in three tiers. Again, if you're a member and you took a membership class, you, you know this, that we talk about uh, tier one, beliefs we would die for, tier two, beliefs that we would defend, and tier three, beliefs we will discuss. That while the scripture serves as the foundational authority of all that we believe, we want to hold with some humility the, 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 the fact that the Bible does not have uniform clarity on every belief, and not every belief holds equal importance in the Bible. But Christians should be clear on what the Bible is clear on. And one of the things the Bible is clear on is the truth and the importance of the gospel. And as a side note, one problem that I know I see in my own heart and that we see pervasive in the church is when people take those tier two and tier three theological convictions that Christians should be able to disagree on and elevate them to tier one and say that you're not a believer if you don't believe this about, say, baptism or gifts of the Spirit. But that's another sermon. But this is why Paul is saying you are turning to a different gospel and then immediately says, not that there is another one. There is no other gospel for salvation. And so any distortion to the gospel is not an alternative option that, hey, you can believe that if that makes sense to you, if that lines up with your experiences. He says that's no gospel at all. It's a counterfeit gospel. Uh, so, so at some point in the last year or two, um, one of our kids, we, we have four kids, age seven on down, so a lot of toys everywhere in this house. And Brinley or the twins got a gift. I don't know if we gave it to them or I don't know, I'll probably blame the grandparents. Someone got them a toy cash register. Have you seen this cash register? That came with fake money. This was the realest looking fake money I have ever seen. Like we have come a long way from Monopoly money. Like, I give credit to Monopoly. They weren't even trying to make it look real, right? Just different colors, different sizes, denominations that aren't even really denominations, smaller, thinner. But the money that came with this register was the exact design of real dollars and denominations, same size, same colors, to the point where within, like, relatively, like, soon after they got it, Rochelle and I started to confuse it for real money. Where, where like our, our now three-year-old Graham would be walking around with like a wad of 20s. And I would do a double take. I'm like, I don't even have that many 20s like in the last five years. Like what, where did you get this? And it was just this like quick jolt of like, wait, how did you, where did you, okay, no, that's the fake money. 
But the problem was, and we actually got rid of it, just just side note, so I don't know, like, we just said, like, that's not healthy for anybody, and we're doing our duty in this world, we're getting rid of this fake money. But that money, as real as it looked, was not an alternative option to real money. It was counterfeit, which meant it held no value, no matter how it seemed. I could not take one of those fake 20s and walk down to Wilkes Deli around the corner and be like, listen, this is not real money, but look how real it looks. Like, how much would you get, you know, how much could I use it for here? You know, is this 20 worth like 10, 10 bucks? Can I use it for 10 bucks of stuff in your store? How about five? All right, a dollar. I mean, look how real it is. I mean, just 20 for one. I think that's fair. They'd say no. Because it is worthless. And to distort money is to destroy its value. And in the same way, to distort the gospel is to destroy its value. And the most dangerous false gospels are the ones that appear closest to the truth. It's dangerous because the gospel alone has the power to save Paul writes in his letter to the Romans in 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for, he's telling you why, he's not ashamed of it, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the gospel that brings us from death to life in Christ. It is the gospel in which we are transformed from the inside out. It's by the gospel that we are given a spirit by which we now live out this truth. And again, that we participate in the renewal of creation. That the gospel doesn't just mean you're, you're set in eternity, but that you participate in something now in what God is doing. And so I believe that you cannot truly love God nor truly love your neighbor as God designed you to without the transformational power of the gospel. This is why Paul is so passionate. He's not being prideful. He's saying that when you distort it, you equate it with turning from God himself. Remember verse 6, deserting him who called you. Not just deserting the gospel, you're deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. When you distort the gospel, you turn from God. You turn from grace. And the consequences are horrific, not only for you, but for those who God has called you to love that are all around you. That's number one. That's our longest answer. Don't get nervous. Five questions. Let's go to number two. What causes people to turn to a different gospel? So if we saw why is it so dangerous, what causes people to turn to a different gospel? Paul gives two reasons. I imagine it's not an exhaustive list, but staying rooted in this text, he gives two reasons. In verse 7, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Two reasons why professing Christians turn away from the gospel they once believed. Troubled souls followed by twisted truth. Troubled souls followed by twisted truth. It's important to remember here, we're not talking about non-believers. We're not talking about those who have never believed. That specifically here, 
We're talking about those who at one time professed belief in the gospel and then have begun to or have turned from that belief. Troubled souls. There are a lot of reasons why someone might be troubled in their soul regarding that which they claim to believe. I can't even give all the reasons, but let me just give maybe a few, maybe more common ones if I can dare to say that. It may be a crisis or a hardship where they begin to doubt the presence of God in their own lives. A hardship in life that makes them doubt the presence of God. So the Old Testament example of what is happening in Galatia can be found in Exodus 32. Do you remember what happened in Exodus 32? God has rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt through his powerful uh, works of the ten plagues through Moses. They are brought out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God for 40 days. Do you remember what happened? The leaders of Israel panicked. They couldn't sense God's presence there was a hardship in the desert of just kind of not understanding uh, what, what God was doing in this. They did not trust in his word that he was with them. And so stunningly, after being rescued from slavery, they turn, they convince some moron named Aaron to form a golden calf, a different God. How quickly they deserted the God who saved them. It's the Old Testament example of what is happening here in Galatia. A crisis, a hardship that makes them doubt his presence. Um, further, another reason for a troubled soul is a tragedy one experiences where in the midst of that suffering or watching somebody else suffer or a people group suffer, they wonder why God would allow something to happen like that. If the first one is you doubt God's presence, this one is doubting God's goodness. It's a crisis. It's a, it's a troubled soul. I, I see what you're saying, God. I see what your word says, but what I'm watching here, what I'm experiencing, this hardship, I, I, this, is, this is troubling me. Let me give one more reason. Is someone themselves is a victim to grievous sin or abuse, especially by a believer or a church? by someone who professes this true gospel, but whose lives, whose hypocritical sin do not reflect that gospel. Going back to the introduction, they might believe it in their mind, but they're not experiencing it, they're not living it out, and it harms others. Where it's not just that you're a victim to sin, but you're a victim to sin by someone who claims to follow Christ. It's one thing to be sinned against, it's haunting for those who were done, especially by a leader in a church that professes the gospel. Which is why in my own heart that I am trying to stay rooted in myself because the public perception and the private perception, there's a gap there and it's easy to see that gap widen and justify the gap of, of what appears to be true and what is actually true of a knowledge and a gifting to explain the gospel but not to live it out in your home, in your family, in your church. We'll talk more about this next week. 
but it is possible and unfortunately in some spaces we have seen increasingly common for someone to get the gospel of grace right by definition, but not reflect the heart of Christ in their lives and love for others. I think the most dangerous kind of false teacher is the one who says the right thing, but whose life does not reflect the right truth. Churches and teachers that preach grace, profess grace, but do not have a culture of grace or do not live out of grace themselves, I think they do more damage to the kingdom of God than those of a different religion. That's my opinion, I'll admit that. But a troubled soul, for any of those reasons or more, then becomes vulnerable to be drawn away by twisted truth. We don't know what exactly was troubling the Galatian church, if this was purely intellectual, if it was purely just peer pressure of those who were kind of leaders within the church, or if there was kind of some behavioral damage happening to them. But whatever it was, the ground beneath their feet was softening. They were no longer standing on the rock. And then they become more apt to believe in a distorted gospel with false truth. And while in Galatia it happened quickly, in Exodus 32 it happened quickly, I think commonly this is a process that happens over time. It is rare that someone wakes up and just decides, you know what, not going to be a Christian anymore. Just, it's Tuesday. Decided, not today. I think that's very rare that that happens, that it often happens gradually, 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 and then to others suddenly, but it was not sudden for them. Abandoning the faith, or what is called apostasy, is often rooted in a soul-aching disappointment with God or with the church. Sometimes that disappointment is unfairly casted. Most times, it's probably from genuine hurt and disappointment, that they're not doing so proudly, but they're doing so with tears in their eyes. That's the second question. Let's keep going. Number three, how can we identify those who teach a different gospel? How can we identify those who teach a different gospel? The answer to this question is actually relatively simple, but not easy. It's simple, but vital. It is the overarching message Paul is giving throughout the entire letter that we're going to see over and over again. That when it comes to the message of salvation and a false gospel, a counterfeit gospel, a fake gospel, I think there's two equations for it. I'm going to put them on the screen. One would be, Anything minus Jesus is a false gospel. And Jesus plus anything is a false gospel. And I could be wrong, but I think these two equations represent every false gospel and teaching in the history of the world past, present, and future. And so let me just briefly take them one at a time. The second one is the one that Paul is dealing with in Galatia, but I think these are two. One that I just wrote as, anything minus Jesus is a fake gospel, meaning if a belief or a worldview does not include the atoning life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sin, and then victory over that sin, as shown in the resurrection, is not the gospel. So any view that removes the life, work, and resurrection of Jesus will not 
have the power to salvation. And so here in this bucket, you would put world religions or atheism or moralism or uh, secularism. Um, anything that does not, again, view Jesus as the Son of God is not good news unto salvation. The Son of God who took on flesh to restore and redeem sinners by His grace. The second one, Jesus plus anything is a fake gospel. And this, again, is the case in Galatia. This is the more subtle false gospel, and therefore the more, I think, dangerous version of a false gospel. The false gospels that have done the most damage from within the church are in this second category. And again, for us to approach this with humility and not pride. This gospel says that, yes, we believe in Jesus. Yes, we believe in you know, the virgin birth and, and the life and death and resurrection. We believe in grace, but we don't just believe in Jesus. It's Jesus plus something else. In the first generation of the church, which is where Paul is writing into now, the most prominent false gospel was this one. Paul would address it over and over in his letters. Again, Acts 15 would do a whole council on it, kind of meeting of the minds, and then they'd send a statement out. That is the one of the Judaizers. That teachers came in and said that salvation comes from faith in Jesus plus circumcision of the flesh. Plus alignment with Jewish holy days and customs. And we will dig deep into that later in this letter. In the second generation of the church... This is the generation that the Apostle John in his final years would be writing into. In 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John is what would be called Gnosticism. And this false gospel would be prevalent for 400 years within the early church. And that is harder to nail down, which is why it lasted so long. But Gnosticism essentially comes from faith in Jesus plus a secret inner knowledge that only a few could obtain. But the moment you add anything to the person and work of Jesus, whether that is a belief, whether that is a certain behavior or preference, salvation from that gospel is destroyed. The power of that gospel is destroyed the moment you add anything. It is to say that grace was not enough. It's grace plus. And in doing that, like the Galatians, we trade freedom of the grace for the bondage of the law. Salvation is found in the common song we sing here, Christ alone. You take away either of those words, the gospel is destroyed. Take away Christ, no gospel. And if you take away alone, no gospel. And it's why Paul will say twice in verses 8 and 9, if anyone teaches a gospel contrary to this, they should be accursed. Paul does not put himself, Paul does not even put angels above this. He says, if I or anyone with me begin to preach a gospel different from that which we proclaim to you, abandon us, leave us, walk away. Let us be left to God's judgment. He'll take care of us. Just don't fall for it. No messenger goes above the message. No teacher, no preacher rises above the truth. 
And just a brief word here um, that I just kind of want to include, because as I talk with and walk alongside believers, whether it be teenagers or, or young adults or those even maybe more mature in their faith, um, there's a struggle with the exclusivity of Christianity. The, 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 who, who get challenged maybe by people in their life to, that they are narrow-minded if they truly believe there's only one way to salvation. That, that, that people struggle with that kind of being challenged in that way of like, Christianity is so exclusive. That feels very unloving. Doesn't it feel more loving to be inclusive? Right? And so if you went all the way to the other end of that spectrum, would be the view that, again, is increasingly popular, especially with younger generations, is that all religions are equally valid. There's no one way to live, no one way to eternal life. Truth is what you decide for you. Parents, this is what your children, this is the water that they're swimming in, right? That this is, this is the, it, it sounds pretty good initially. And, and to immature maybe minds or people who are growing up in their faith, they will really struggle with this. Like, yeah, this feels like an unloving view that I've grown up with. What do I do with this? The only thing I'll say for now for time's sake is that view that claims to be ex- exclu- inclusive, excuse me, is actually as exclusive as believing as Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Because in order to say that, you have to say, follow me here, I know there is no one way to salvation. I know you can't really know. So accept all. And that sounds good at first, but that is as exclusive of a claim, of a truth claim, as someone who's saying, I believe and I trust in the authority of the word that puts forth Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. And so the idea of, um, you know, there being moral good people in other religions or other viewpoints, I, I don't doubt that is true. I know that's true. I'm not saying you cannot live a moral life as an atheist or a Buddhist or a secular humanist. What I am saying is that morality does not save you. And we ought not to complain that there's only one way to salvation. We ought to marvel and be humbled for the fact that there is a way unto salvation at all. And that God in his grace revealed that to us. And so we do not want to live in a place that forces religion on anyone. We very much believe in the freedom of people making their own choice, but we don't think that people making their own choices are equally valid when it comes to salvation and eternal life. So hope that was helpful. Two questions left. Let's go. Number four. How should we approach those who are turning to a different gospel? How should we approach those who are turning to a different gospel? This letter being written and being sent to these churches is evidence that while the situation in Galatia was serious, their situation was not hopeless. Paul, notice, does not speak in the past tense. He doesn't say, I'm astonished that you deserted him who called. He doesn't say that I'm astonished that you turned from, a, from the gospel. He uses present tense language. He said, I'm amazed that you are turning. I'm amazed that you are deserting. You are in the process of. This is a serious situation, but it is not hopeless And I would take it a step further that even if there were some within the church who have turned, 
who have deserted, that even then, as long as they have a pulse, their situation is not hopeless. As long as someone is breathing, no one is ever too far gone from God's grace. And God will never, no matter what happened before it, will never reject someone who humbles themselves and draws near to him. So, with that said, how can we approach and engage those who are turning to a different gospel? Or maybe you would say they've already turned. I know top of mind for many in our church community is a child who grew up in the church, who once professed Christ, but began to walk away, or walked away. I know there are many who have a sibling who is no longer walking with the Lord as they once did. Maybe you look back and you're growing up in your youth group days and there's friends you had in youth group that were so passionate for the Lord on a mission trip or in, in the gatherings and were even maybe in leadership and student ministry but now want nothing to do with Christ. Maybe there's a fellow church member who you once just were shoulder to shoulder with in gospel ministry in a small group shared lives together that now have walked away. What do we do in these situations? Again, Galatians does not give us an exhaustive list, but I think Paul gives us some insight. Starting with a spirit of gentleness. I want to go to Galatians 6, verse 1, which we'll see, um, obviously, down the road, Lord willing. But Galatians 6, 1 says this, Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness is also included in his list of the fruit of the Spirit that we'll see in chapter 5. And it's one of the most overlooked fruits of the Spirit in the church today. But condemnation, beating someone over the head doesn't restore. No one ever got bullied into the kingdom of God. It takes a strong and mature Christian to be gentle. Like um, Christy prayed, like uh, you heard AJ in the announcement of the book that we're giving away, that many of you have already gotten that book. If not, definitely want you to take it. That, the, that book is based on the verse uh, that, again, Christy started her prayer with, that the only time Jesus described his own heart in the Bible, it happens one time Jesus describes his heart, he uses the words gentle and lowly. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. So it shows us a spirit of gentleness, but I think his letter also shows us that grace-filled warnings are also necessary when they are done in the spirit of gentleness. So gentleness doesn't mean you never speak up. Gentleness does not mean you never warn. A grace-filled warning can be used by God to save their life. And listen, we all know nobody likes being warned initially. You ever gotten a warning where you're just like initially like, thank you for that? No, the initial response to being warned is always a little bit of, I don't don't want to hear that. But those whom the Spirit keeps will equip them to listen to the warnings that will save their life. So encourage people, and when necessary, warn people 
to submit to the word and not give in to their feelings that might at this moment be contrary to the word. God gives us feelings. God gives us those emotions. They're not pointless, but they should never follow or lead us into truth. They should flow from truth. There's an African scholar in his commentary I was studying on this passage. He shared an old Nigerian saying that goes like this. Quote, he who tries to shake a tree trunk only shakes himself. Let that one sink in this afternoon. While false teachers may have success in shaking their followers, they cannot shake the gospel. They cannot damage the gospel itself because the gospel is unshakable. But they can do a lot of damage in having people shake themselves. So a spirit of gentleness, a desire to give grace-filled warnings, and finally pray. And maybe I, shouldn't, maybe I should put that first. Pray. Don't talk to them more than you pray for them. Don't talk about them more than you pray for them. In any transgression, but certainly in a transgression of denying the faith. Bring it to the throne of grace and trust them to the Lord. Okay, we got one question left. Thanks for bearing with me. Last question. How do we avoid turning to a different gospel? How do we avoid turning to a different gospel? The back half of Galatians 6, verse 1, on restoring others that I just read with a spirit of gentleness is telling because Paul tells us why. The back half of that verse says this, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Sometimes, I know I can be guilty of this, we can fall so in love with critiquing others, with pointing out others' errors, Maybe even warning them, or if we don't know them personally, talking about them to others. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that, but sometimes we can fall so in love with that that we lose sight of the enemy's efforts to draw us away from the faith that we proclaim. The danger of denying the faith is real. And we should be humble in knowing that that could happen to us. But let me finish by saying clearly that what is even more real is the sustaining grace of God. That God is faithful to complete that which he begins. I personally, I'm not saying every Christian needs to believe this, I personally wholeheartedly hold to the belief of once saved, always saved. Meaning that those who are truly in Christ cannot lose their salvation. But that is not due to us. That is due to the grace of God that is seen to completion, for we are saved, we are kept, and we are delivered by him. And so when John says in 1 John that those who went out from us were never of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. When Paul is saying that you are turning from a different gospel, he means that those who abandon the faith reveal that the faith they once professed was never truly Jesus, but only Jesus in name. And underneath that, their faith, their actual foundation was something else. But let us all have a spirit of humility, knowing that grace is the death of pride, and pride is the death of grace. 
and understand that we ought to cling to the gospel of grace and not drift from it. We ought to adhere to all the means of grace God provides to us to cling to him, never seeing ourselves as untouchable and what the enemy might use in that to actually send you and have you drift away. Let us submit to the word of the authoritative on, uh, word on our lives. Let us, let us join together with a covenant of believers as a means of grace to grow us in grace that keeps at top of mind for us the story of the good news of the gospel and trust that the Spirit will not depart from us because he cannot depart from us. Because the Spirit testifies to the word and the words of Jesus saying in John, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And listen, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And let us live out of the freedom, to bring this full circle from the introduction, let us live out of that freedom and confidence of Paul's promise of the gospel and his promise to the church in Philippi. For I am sure of this, that he, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what even four verses can do to impress upon our minds. And Father, I pray that this does not remain just in our heads, that this would be a gospel that is true not only in our head, but also in our heart, and then lived out with our hands. Father, give us the grace, because we need it. Let us be known for our gentleness and our passion for you and our love for others. Let us be able to hold on to truth with full conviction, truth that we would die for, while also being known in this world not as judgmental or exclusive or unloving, but as those who claim Christ as their Savior and commit to a life that is known by and marked by a love for neighbor. Father, the world tells us you can't do both, but your gospel of grace says we can by your Spirit. Let us do that as individuals this week. Let us do that as a church, knowing that we will do it imperfectly, but that you will grow us in grace by your Spirit. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.